From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. In a landmark decision in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Supreme Court has voted to overturn both Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, eliminating a 50-year precedent and the constitutional right to an abortion. We expect that half of the states across the country will ban abortion either immediately or in the coming days, weeks, or months. Pregnant people in these states will now be forced to carry their pregnancies to term. This decision was expected in some ways. A draft opinion for the case was leaked in May, revealing the intent to overturn the right to access an abortion. But I'm not sure that anything could truly prepare us for the reality that we are now facing. So much is at stake. Joining us to help break down the decision and discuss what we can all do in response are Jen Dalvin, director of the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, Rhea Tepikomar, director of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, and Louise Melling, deputy legal director and director of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Center for Liberty at the ACLU. Jen, Rhea, Louise, thank you all so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Kendall. So Jen, I want to start with the impact here. Just minutes after the ruling came out, we saw both Missouri and Kentucky already sign bills into law banning abortion. In total, we expect half the states to ban abortion. What does this look like on the ground for folks who had appointments today who might be sitting in a waiting room trying to access care? Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's and it's just devastating. One very important thing for folks to know is that this will vary tremendously by from state to state. So if you have an appointment today, if you need an abortion, you should still go ahead and contact the clinic in your state that you were hoping to go to, see if they're open, see if they're able to still provide care, or if not, if they're able to direct you someplace else. But you're absolutely right. Kendall, people will be turned away from abortion care starting today because of this decision and because of activities of politicians in many states who have worked to take away our ability to control our bodies and our lives. It's such a devastating image to see people in a waiting room upon hearing this decision coming down. I can only imagine what the folks working in these states, in these clinics, trying to provide care are going through and what the people waiting to seek that care are going through as well. But I want to be clear here. This decision does not impact all people who can get pregnant equally. As Justice Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer note in their dissent, some women, especially women of means, will find ways around the state's assertion of power. Others, those without money or childcare or the ability to take time off from work, will not be so fortunate. We know at the ACLU that people are always going to want and need abortions, and all that the Supreme Court has done is make them more inaccessible, more legally precarious, and more inequitable. Rhea, who are the folks that we need to center the most in our efforts to provide access to this care? Kendall, I think the dissenters have it exactly right. And I I just want to note for a moment how rare it is to have three Supreme Court justices to join a dissent together, not to sign any one individual's name. And what I think is a really powerful show of solidarity with all of the people who are absolutely devastated by this opinion, which should be all of us. 
right? And it's not just women and people who will have more difficulty accessing abortion. It is the risks that come with being pregnant in a country that has made pregnancy incredibly dangerous. We know the leading cause of death during pregnancy is murder. We also know that women are more than 14 times likely to die in childbirth than they are having an abortion. These are all policy choices this country has made to make being pregnant an incredibly, incredibly risky time in a person's life when they are risking their health, their job, their ability to remain safely housed. And all of those risks are going to fall much more harshly on Black women and other women of color, on women who have limited incomes, women who will be forced to raise families that are larger than they would have chosen, larger than they knew that they could take on at this moment in their lives. And those are the people we should be most concerned about and we should be most concerned with lifting up. I also think that it's really important not just to note the the violence that can come with being pregnant or the health risks that can come with being pregnant, but also just the other reproductive concerns associated with the access to abortion or or pregnancy. Jen, I wonder if you could shed some light on some of the other stakes here. You know, and it's it's not just about seeking an abortion. We know that reproductive autonomy is about making a whole set of decisions and choices of how and when to build a family. We also know that some states have showed signs of criminalizing miscarriage, IVF, IUDs. How does this decision kind of bust open the possibility of other reproductive choices also being called into question. Yeah, it's very concerning. Kendall, you're exactly right in a number of ways. First of all, we are very concerned about people being investigated for miscarriage, Um, people being assumed that when you're experiencing a miscarriage and you seek health care, that people maybe uh, think that you've tried to um, self-manage your own abortion and that people will be investigated for that. And we know, like Leah said, who will be investigated the most. It will be black women. It will be other women of color. It will be folks with uh, limited means who are relying on public health care systems. So we're quite concerned about that. And you're right. We've also seen attempts to, um, for example, uh, attempt to prevent people from getting access to contraception. Um, and that can be a next target. So you're absolutely right that those are some of the additional uh, fallouts from this decision. But I also just don't want to, I just can't even take away from what's happened today. Today in half the state, you know, in half the states in the country, people are likely to soon lose their right to decide whether or not to continue a pregnancy. And many, many will be forced to carry a pregnancy um, against their will. And we know, as Rhea said, pregnancy for many of us is a joy and a wonder and we couldn't think of anything better than to have the children we have but pregnancy puts enormous stresses on the body and has tremendous consequences for our lives and our health most women who have abortions already have children right and so this law will impact not just the people who have abortions but their larger families as well yeah thank you so much for that. I think that's really, really important to note. And it is something that really struck me as offensive (laughs) to the movement and the efforts that we all have been fighting for, some of us for a very long time. And this case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, dealt with a Mississippi law seeking to ban abortion at 15 weeks. That was the law up for discussion in this case. 
And instead of just answering that question, the Supreme Court essentially tore it all open and said, we'll use this as a time to reevaluate Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, legal precedent that has been on the books for 50 years. Justice Roberts' dissent notes this. He writes, the opinion is thoughtful and thorough, but its dramatic and consequential ruling is unnecessary to decide the case that was before us. So to you, Louise, I know you've been in this work for quite some time. How did we get here? I think a lot of people are reading what's happening and seeing what's going on and wondering, where did all of this come from? I guess part of what I just want to point to is the, de- the decision saying that we had a right to decide whether or not to have children, how to control our lives in, in some really profound way it was part of a real move to really transform gender relations in this country. It happens at the same time as there's demands for childcare. It happens at the same time as all of a sudden women who are married are allowed to have credit cards in their own names. Um, in any time we make progress, we being any one of our movements and our intersecting movements, there's always ferocious opposition. I mean, we see that all over the place. We see that with we see that today so vividly with the the fights to push back on the gains that have been made on behalf of transgender people and transgender youth in particular. So all of this is about a contest. This is about a contest for power and a contest for whether we are really going to live up to our views that, you know, this is a country that's supposed to be embracing all of us once some of us start to to get our foot in the door, there's other people willing to really push us back. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, that's what it's about. It's it's a struggle for what kind of nation do we want to be and who gets to really participate fully in that nation and in that decision. To get into the actual context of the opinion itself, what is the legal reasoning that Justice Alito uses to overturn both Planned Parenthood v. Casey and Roe v. Wade. There was a headline soon after the leak where it was something to the effect of, you know, Supreme Court seeking to reverse 21st century. And, you know, there's a way in which that's true. It's trying to go back even further. And if there's there's so many things that make me want to scream and cry about this decision, the reasoning kind of goes, the word abortion isn't anywhere in the Constitution. So, well, then it's a really high high bar in order to get protection. So we're going to look at whether it's, whether there's ordered liberty and ordered liberty, we go back in time. We go back in this case to the time that the 14th amendment was adopted. And what was the status of abortion then? And, you know, to be quite blunt, let me just say, just shut up, right? Are we really going to imagine that our rights are frozen at that time? And that's how we're going to think about our constitution. That's how we're going to think about how so many of us get to live our lives in this country. And the whole idea that we're, we can go back to the states and work through our democratically elected officials, blah, 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 sort of just undercuts the very notion that there's some place, somebody's job who, job who it is to protect those of us who aren't in, in the majority. Sorry, it's a, it's a really bad day. I just want to add a footnote to that, which is that actually we are the majority. And one of the things that's so upsetting about this opinion is how counter-majoritarian it is. It's enabled by over a decade of eviscerating the Voting Rights Act, which has led to profoundly unrepresentative state legislatures that have passed increasingly uh, unpopular and hostile restrictions on abortion. And all of this is made possible by the same Supreme Court that in Shelby County opened the door to this kind of uh, voter suppression that has led us to this moment where the court um, 
can send it back to the states, knowing that it has created environments in those state legislatures that are profoundly hostile to our freedom, that are intentionally hostile to our freedom, and that do not, in fact, represent the will of the people who live there either. Jen, do you have anything to add? I was just going to add, you know, the the uh, Justice Alito goes to lengths to say that this doesn't affect our other freedoms, that we're going to stop here at abortion. But nobody should be fooled, right? The same um, analysis that Louise just talked about, whether the words are in the Constitution and what was the status years and years and years and years ago, will put lots of other rights at risk and lots of rights that we think are couldn't be questioned today will put them at risk and put them up for grabs. Um, and so no one should be comforted by those words in Justice Alito's opinion. Yeah. And to that end, uh, Justice Thomas was actually not quiet about the other rights that could be called into question because they are not explicitly stated in the Constitution. So he writes in a concurring opinion that the Supreme Court should reconsider Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Those are rulings that protect contraceptives, same-sex relationships, same-sex marriage. What kind of signal do you think that this sends to the states, the opposition? Um, How are all of these rights interconnected? Well, first of all, I just wanted to point out that Justice Thomas didn't write the opinion in a vacuum. And after the majority opinion was leaked, there was a tremendous amount of speculation among commentators and on social media about what this would mean for precisely the cases that you talked about. So Griswold, the right for married couples to attain to obtain contraception. Lawrence, the right to same-sex intimacy. You know, Obergefell, freedom to marry for same-sex couples. And Justice Thomas's response to that speculation was, in fact, to write down in paper, yes, that is exactly what we meant. And I think that sends a very, very clear and disturbing message about the value placed on our lives. But if we think about the, the doctrine, the substantive due process doctrine, it's really about this question of how narrowly or how broadly do we define our right to freedom? Because the truth is that property-owning white men have long had the liberty to make these kinds of decisions about their lives, how and when to form a family, uh, you know, who to be intimate with. And so the only question is, are the rest of us included in that guarantee or not? And the majority answers the question no by sort of slicing and dicing that liberty into incredibly specific ways uh, that matter only to some of us and not to others. And it's quite intentional who is in and who is out. But I think the real answer is, do all of us have access to that same promise of liberty that the Constitution guaranteed to what was even then a minority of the population? Or do only some have that access? And today, really, really uh, answer that question in the most uh, devastating and exclusive way. So to that end, to all the speculation, do you believe that we need to be concerned about all of these other rights that we currently value? Absolutely. I mean, Justice Thomas has now essentially invited state legislators to begin targeting those rights and signaled that at least some members of the court are receptive to to those laws and would uphold those kinds of restrictions on our liberty, which, again, to be clear, impact our very ability to exist as we are, to organize our families, to organize our lives. These are rights that the justices and the majority are going to continue to enjoy. But many of us on this call and many of those who are listening will not. I think another piece of this that strikes me as really important to talk about, which was actually something that Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer wrote about in their dissent. They write, the legal framework Roe and Casey developed to balance the competing interests in this sphere has proved workable in courts across the country. No recent developments in either law or fact have eroded or casted doubt on those precedents. Nothing in short has changed. 
They go on to say that the court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only, because of the composition of the court that has changed. Uh, it struck me as very uh, notable that they acknowledge this new composition of the court as being the determining factor. Uh, Roe v. Wade was a decision that was decided in 1973. It was a 7-2 decision. It wasn't close. Women had far less standing in the 1970s than they do now. How do you all see this as a decision? And is this just merely a political shift? Well, well we, I mean, we know this to be true. The reason that, the, that this decision came out the way it did is because of the shenanigans that went on in Congress and who got appointed to the Supreme Court and how, right? That, that President Obama was not allowed a, a confirmation and, and President Trump rushed one through at the end, right? We know that that is, that is why this happened. And one of the starkest pieces of evidence that is sort of a behind the scenes piece of evidence, but before um, Justice Barrett uh, got on the court, Mississippi had a different argument. Their argument was just uphold our 15-week ban. It's okay under Roe and Casey. You can uphold this ban. When she was confirmed, they changed their argument. And they said, nope, you can't uphold this ban at all because Roe and Casey were wrongly decided. That was a footnote in their in their cert petition. It was the entire premise of their brief once the court changed. You don't need any further evidence than that. One thing that's striking is that the dissent is so explicit about what's going on, right? I mean, this is this is a further, and this explicit sentence and this decision comes out after a poll I've seen that says that the Supreme Court, you know, this week was shown to have its lowest rating ever in terms of its, its legitimacy. It's a reminder of Justice Sotomayor during argument talking about the stench. Um, and, but for the justices themselves to say that this is political is is really a break from how the justices have been willing to speak about one another, period, and in particular in decisions. Just shows we're at a really, a really fraught place. Yeah, and I, I think it's obviously not the first matter of concern to say that the court has become a political entity, but it, it, it does matter for future future cases that this court will hear. I do want to turn to what we are doing at the ACLU because I don't want anyone to think listening to this that although we are sad, although we are distraught, although we are angry, that we are not going to be fighting back. So with that, um, I, I want to turn it to Jen. What What is you are leading the Reproductive Freedom Project? Obviously, this is a very tough time to be doing that work. What is your team? What are you focused on um, in helping just pry open access, every little bit of access that we can uh, across the country. Thanks, Kendall. Thanks for asking that question, because you're right. While we are devastated, we're taking a deep breath and we are going forward and we are not stopping here. We They, they didn't stop and we won't either. Um, we will be using all of the tools at our disposal. That means we'll be filing a number of lawsuits wherever we can to try to preserve access in as many places as we can for as many people as we can for as long as we can. But we're not just using the courts. We are going to be in 
in state houses, we are going to be in the streets, we are going to be in Congress, and we are going to be at the voting booth. But we need every single one of you to remember how you feel today, to talk to your friends and your neighbors about how you feel today, and to engage one another, and to be in with us both today and for the long haul, because this is going to be a long fight together. So a couple of things that we're doing, we're working on ballot measures in a number of states to to do exactly what Rhea and Louise talked about. Let the people speak directly to um, what they want, what they want um, for their, for themselves, for their families, for their loved ones. Um, so in Michigan, we are right now collecting signatures to put on the ballot um, a measure that would protect people's um, uh, rights to reproductive freedom broadly, including abortion access. Um, and we hope that will be on the ballot in November and people can um, vote um, because, as Rhea says, we are the majority. A similar measure will be on the ballot in Vermont. We're also fighting against, if you can believe it, further attempts to take away our rights to um, uh, any uh, any right to reproductive health care. So in Kansas this August, uh, there is a measure on the ballot that would say that the Kansas Constitution can't be read to protect access to abortion. We want to and we will defeat that measure. There's a similar measure going to be on the ballot in Kentucky, and we will fight that measure as well. Um, we're working um, to educate voters about the importance of state-level races, because a lot of this is decided at the state level. And it's critically important that people let their state representatives know how they feel and that they won't stand for this. Even if your state already has a ban, we'll be doing some voter education work around state Supreme Court races and other races as well. And there'll be many ways for folks to get engaged and involved. There'll be an activist training series that the ACLU will host. And I hope people will go to aclu.org and sign up for um, alerts to find out how they can get involved both in their uh, across the nation and in uh, the, in their state. I also just want to add that people yes, shouldn't I be sanguine about the federal level. The state level is inc- it's totally vital. So many of our rights are determined at the state level in, in lots of ways. But our adversaries aren't stopping here. What our adversaries would like to see is a nationwide ban on abortion. So show up for the states, show up for the ballots, show up for your friends, show up for the rallies, show up for Congress. Just to put a finer point on it, when the, if and when um, uh, opponents of reproductive freedom get control of the of Congress and the presidency, they can pass a ban on abortion um, uh, nationwide. And so, folks in in you know on the coast may feel like today, oh goodness, goodness, this isn't me. That's great. Um, but but we all have something to be worried about, no matter where you live. And Jen, just for clarification's sake, on the national abortion ban point, I know that some states have boasted that they have laws codifying the access to abortion in their state constitution. Can the national abortion ban supersede something that a state has carved out? So in our country, federal law takes precedence over state law. Um, and so if Congress passes a ban, that would, could be a ban across the entire country, no matter who you've elected in your state house and, and what laws you have passed or how you've amended your constitution. Um, certainly that is going to be the attempt of uh, folks who are opposed to reproductive freedom. I don't want to fear monger here, but I also don't, I think it is important to be uh, realistic about what we expect to see attempted, at least. Um, Vice President Pence just did 
congratulate the court on this decision and also advocate for a national abortion ban. Um, so I think that's it's not out of the realm of possibility, truly. I think it's important that we also talk about things like data privacy for people who are going to be trying to seek abortion care. It strikes me as a, a time that the ACLU can really lead because we are a multi-issue organization. I do think that that is the, the value the value differential that we bring to the table. And, and Louise, I was wondering if you could just, you know, break down how we see this issue as a broader fight um, at the ACLU. So we're not just talking about what we're going to be doing uh, in the Reproductive Freedom Project, but also in the Voting for Voting Rights Project for the Speech Privacy and Technology Project for the Women's Rights Project. How are all of these teams, even the Criminal Law Reform Project, how are all these teams working together at the ACLU now to fight back against this this reality? Well, I think, Kendall, you almost answered the question you asked me by pointing to the, the ways in which the ACLU has um, expertise and commitment to the, a full range of, of civil rights and civil liberties issues. And the question about accessing abortion implicates so many of those, right? I mean, but in the pre-Roe days, people didn't have cell phones. There weren't trackers. There weren't people signing into, you know, pregnancy apps and, and other other things. So we need to be thinking about how to protect privacy. We need to, we have criminal law experts throughout the organization as we think about what what kind of advice to give people. And we think about the prosecutions that we think may well come. How do we best set people up to, of, to assess their risks and then to ensure that people get the proper defenses that they need? And we know, as, as you've been making the point, everybody's been making the point here, this is an issue about women's rights. This is an issue about racial justice. This is an issue about transgender justice in that it's about immigrant rights. It's about disability. It's all of us are making decisions in our lives, usually about whether or not we want to create a family. But we are all in. We were all in before and we are all in it again. I mean, still, it's not again. Still, we may have paused for two seconds to cry, but that's it. <laughs> it's important to note that we are, we are only crying for two seconds, according to uh, Louise. Uh, I do want to... Well, I'm not okay. speaking for myself okay. there. Fair, fair. <laughs> I do want to touch on one concern I see. This hasn't this isn't a total shock to us to see this decision come out in this way. Thanks to the leaked draft opinion, we have been aware as as many people have in the country that this is on our doorstep. I think the feeling that people are having, a lot of people are having is, well, does voting actually really matter because right now we have a Democrat in the presidency. We have a, a Congress that is situated in a way that they are predominantly people who support abortion access. If we have all of these things in place and yet we still can't protect ourselves, then does does voting actually really matter? So voting is critical. I understand that that sentiment entirely. Voting is critical, but it's not enough. 
right? It's not enough to just vote for the candidate that happens to be up. They have to hear from you and hear what you want and what you need and you saying to them, and if you don't do it for me, I'm going to vote for somebody more progressive the next time. If we didn't vote, we would have a nationwide ban. Right. We would have a nationwide ban. Right. So it is critical to vote, but it is not enough. It is not enough. We have to make sure that our politicians, both at the state level and at the federal level, hear from us, you know, with regularity on a host of issues and say we are not going to be satisfied with the status quo. I think it's important to to address that concern that people have because we are really relying on folks to, to get out and vote. I want to end with something that Renee Bracey Sherman said in a recent interview. And Renee Bracey Sherman is the founder of We Testify, which is an abortion storytelling effort. We have done some work with them as well. So she says, we've known for the last 4,000 years, people who have abortions never give up. We've been doing it for a long time and we will keep doing it. So in that spirit... I was wondering if each of you could, I guess, reflect on what the the future holds, um, where and how you find hope and and conjuring up your own kind of daily resistance or resilience in in this time and and, in the work that you guys are doing um, and what you can offer up to our audience who might be feeling the same kind of distress or terror that we are feeling today. It is terrifying, Kendall. And I think, um, and the only question is, what are we going to do with that feeling of terror, right? Are we going to use it to to give up or are we going to turn it externally? Are we going to use it to resist? And I want to come back to Jen's comment about the very real possibility of a nationwide ban in that spirit, because we mentioned it not to scare people, but to mobilize people, right? If there is anything that you have been holding back anything at all, right? This is our breaking case of emergency moment. Break the glass, make that phone call every day, run for office, whatever you have, you have to give it everything you got. We will be, but we cannot do it without all of you. I'll say that on the days where it can feel hard because you you look and you look at Congress, you look at the court, whatever. I guess I have two things that run through my mind. And, and one is a line from a poem from Mary Oliver, which in, is, you know, in essence, um, what can I do with this one wild and precious life? Um, and the other is continuing can, continuing can feel hard because you see so much pain and you're not always sure that what you're doing is really making the difference. But the only thing harder than continuing is stopping because just imagine what happens if we stop. I'm not stopping. I'm glad. I'm really glad that we have you, Louise. Jen? So, you know, I think stopping isn't an option. As Renee says, people will continue to need abortion care. And we can't just say, well, gosh, I, I, I give up, right? People still need abortion care. And I think about um, what people do today to get abortion care, what people are doing in Texas and Oklahoma today to get the care they need for themselves and for their families. Um, And they aren't given up and neither can we. And I think about the abortion providers, um, the most dedicated souls in the world, right? They will walk over hot coals to get people the care they need under threats of ostracism in their communities, in their kids' schools, in in their hospitals, against threats of violence. 
And these people are not giving up. And it's the least we can do to stand by the people who need care and the people who are trying to provide it for them. That's the least we can do, even though we are incredibly sad and, and, and depressed today. We got to pick ourselves back up and keep moving forward. Thank you so much for all of that. I also want to note that where I found hope was in listening to, we did a conversation on the podcast with young activists from Texas, Mississippi, and Florida. And I found a lot of energy from listening to people who are on the ground, knocking doors, talking to folks who say, you know, look, this this decision, these politicians they don't reflect us. They don't reflect my town. They don't reflect my community. They don't reflect my people. I think if people want to check that out, I think it would be a restorative listen today. And also just wanted to thank each of you for, for joining us. And I know you have a lot of other work to be doing, but we really appreciate you coming on and sounding off and helping our audience understand what is happening and what needs to happen next. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Kendall. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against this attack on reproductive autonomy and all of the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org keepfighting. To join our new abortion activist training, you can RSVP at aclu.org abortion activist. These links will be in the episode notes. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.